You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as the singer and bass player for the band Ready the Prince, who recently released their new album, Book of OG, which was mixed by three-time Grammy Award-winning producer David Bottrell. So welcome to the podcast, Steve DeChantis. Steve, how are you? And is it true that you like to start your days by doing something that most of us would consider to be quite challenging? Joelle, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, that is true. I start pretty much every morning with a cold shower, um, as cold as I can get it most of the time if I'm up for the challenge. Uh, yeah, I've been doing that for a few years now, and it has significantly uh, changed, I guess, my mornings, my day overall, my just my feeling. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And do you do you start by getting in like a normal temperature shower and you bring it down or are you just a maniac and you start right with cold? Most of the time I just go straight to cold and I'm just kind of it's just like me versus the water before I step in or I'm just like, I got to do this. I know it's worth it. I know it's worth it. But every single morning it's hard. It is never it. I mean, I, I guess it's easier because my body is kind of adapted to it, but like it's still like. I don't want to do it, but I know that it's always worth it. Like midway through the shower, I'm like singing and just like, I feel great. So yeah, but yeah, it's still challenging for sure. I, I read a lot of books on, on fitness and nutrition and health and personal growth. And almost all of them now talk about the benefits of cold therapy. And, you know, it goes back to Wim Hof, the Iceman, who's mm. proven with all this testing. He has all these Guinness World Records of things he's done in the cold. And uh, he helped popularize that. And then, you know, Joe Rogan with cold plunges mm. and all that has continued to popularize that. I'm reading a book right now by Aubrey Marcus, who started the company On It, the health company On It. And he, you know, one of the things he's telling me I need to do is this, you know, cold showers mm -hmm. or cold plunges. And I, I, the benefits are, I, I guess, you know, back in the day, humans, we struggled with everything, like to find food, mm -hmm. to survive, to stay warm. And it was that good stress that, that really helped yeah. us. And nowadays, most people, you know, maybe you have a little stress with your job, but outside of that, it's like you go from a perfectly mm -hmm. heated bed to a heated shower to a heated mm -hmm. room to your heated car to your heated work. And it's it's that lack of physical stress that we mm -hmm. all feel kind of kind of in a daze at all times. So they say that one of the things you can do is the cold, cold shower and it releases all the feel good hormones and all that. So are you you're feeling those benefits as well? And what inspired you to start doing that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I don't, so I don't do it right in the, like right away. Like I, I, I usually go for a run before the cool shower. Um, and that's something I've been doing for like since high school, basically. I, I love jogging. Um, so it's a little bit easier when you've come from a run and you get into the cold shower. But um, yeah, what started, I think I 
I may have read it about it or heard about it on a podcast. Like I listened to a bunch of different, um, you know, videos and podcasts like on like health and stuff like that, like you mentioned. So once I heard about it, actually, you know what? Now that I'm remembering, I think it was like a, um, a photo I saw. Someone shared it on like maybe it was Twitter or something like that. And it just said like the benefits of cold showers versus hot showers. And I just saw the benefits of cold showers. And I was like, oh, I want all those things. Um, and I also like, I have dry skin, so it changed. Like once I, once I had a cold shower, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. Like after I have a hot shower now, I feel terrible because <laughs> like I have such dry skin and like, I don't know, it just doesn't, I just know like cold showers are for me. So yeah. Yeah. Once I had it, I realized how good I felt. I was like, okay, I got to do this as much as I can. So I feel like yeah. this podcast and your band, I feel like all the, <laughs> the sponsorships are going to come out of the woodworks with these <laughs> these companies that promote the the cold plunges and, and cold therapy and all that. So anyways, uh, I, I like to start these interviews by sharing with our listeners how the guests and I know each other, just showing the importance mm -hmm. of networking, of building community, of fostering relationships. So in our case, it goes back uh, uh, maybe a, a year ago where uh, I've had... You know, I talked about in the intro that you have three time Grammy award winning producer David Bottrell that mixed the new album. So I've had him on the, the podcast as a guest twice. And in the last one, we covered his five favorite albums of all time. And we started the episode by spending about a half hour talking about what he's been up to over the last year. And he had worked with five different bands uh, during that year. And one of them was you guys. So you know, I make sure I'm prepared for the interview. So I went and checked out your band. Like I did my research on your band and I listened to the music that was available. I think there was uh, maybe just the one single off the new album that was out at that time. Uh, so we, we talked about you guys during that episode. And mm -hmm. then when I looked into the band, I saw that you guys were out on tour with protest, the hero, and you had a date here in Ottawa. So I, I love protest, the hero. I liked what I heard from you guys. So I, I met you guys at the, uh, the Ottawa show here and, uh, that's how we got here today. That's our, that's our history. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, we guess we got to thank David Bottrell for, for this interview. <laughs> David, David's the man. I'm a huge fan. Uh, man, he's some of the tool albums he did are in my favorite of all time. He's worked with Stained, who's one of my favorite bands and Rush and all these bands. So David's a legend. Yeah. We'll talk about David. There's lots of time to talk about David as we <laughs> go. Uh, but we're going to do a full two hour deep dive. We're going to cover your life, your career, your discography. But we got to get started all the way at the beginning. So <laughs> where does this love of music come from? Is there an earliest musical memory that comes to you now? So I got to give credit to my mom for that, for sure. Um, she, uh, she's a musician. She'll never really say that she's a musician, but she is because she played guitar, I think in her like later years of high school. And, um, and then she kind of played guitar throughout her, her life. And, uh, you know, mainly just chords, but she has like some pretty badass like finger picking uh styles that she does like one or two that are pretty impressive um and so yeah like so there was always a guitar lying around the house kind of thing and uh growing up she she would be playing like really great music from the 60s and 70s um all throughout like our childhood me and my older siblings i have four older uh, three older siblings and um so without realizing it i was always kind of exposed to just like great songwriting 
and uh, just like um, amazing music. And uh, she was just always singing. She was just like singing her heart out in the car. Like I, uh, I played hockey as a lot of Canadians did. And I, um, you know, we were driving all around the GTA uh, for games and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, we were just jamming and singing along to songs. And yeah, like I, I think so a lot of it happened like almost like without me realizing it. Um, that I was just listening to all this great music. So yeah, I got to give credit to my mom for that, for sure. Traffic in Toronto is pretty crazy. So that's some extra <laughs> time that you're in the car listening to music as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So can you can you remember some of those artists that your your mom was playing around the house? Yeah. Um, so the first that come to mind, John Denver. She's a huge John Denver fan. Uh, Rod Stewart. Jim Crochet, um, those are the ones that really come to mind. And there's so much good songwriting just within those artists. Uh, yeah, Beatles. Then she actually, she went through a couple of different phases. At one point, she had like this like Eminem phase, where we had yeah, mom. Um, yeah, she she yeah like I guess I forget which album it would have been um, Encore or maybe the one before Encore, uh, the Red. The Red Curtain. The Eminem uh, show. That record. Eminem show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the record. Uh, so, yeah. And then Linkin Park. And, yeah, we were listening. I think she didn't really like the swearing. So, I think, I don't remember if she had, like, we had one CD that was, like, the censored version and one that was, like, the non-censored. We listened to both. Um, but, yeah, Linkin Park at one point. Uh, so, yeah, like, it wasn't just, like, the old stuff. Like, she went through phases of, like, newer stuff, too. And, um Yeah. So with her playing guitar and having guitars around the house, uh, you're a bass player, but did you actually start on guitar? Cause I was lying around. So she had an acoustic guitar laying around, but it was weird. Like she played when she was younger and then she stopped for a long time and then she kind of picked it back up. So she had like this old guitar from her, from high school that was always lying around, but like, I don't know if it was like properly strong all the time, but anyways, at one point, we rented a guitar for like a summer and we rented this electric guitar. And so that was like the first time I played guitar or bass. Um, but I did play piano. Like all of us played piano, like me and my siblings when I was younger. So I like that would, that would have been the first instrument I played, but yeah, the guitar came in and rented it. And I remember just like not enjoying it. Uh, it was like so difficult for me when I started, I was like, too many strings. Yeah. Like just like a headache. Um, so yeah, guitar was technically first, um, but I did not have a good time with it at first. And it wasn't until, um, I went to an art school in grade seven. Um, so I went to this art school called Cardinal Carter Academy for the Arts in Toronto. And I auditioned with piano, uh, cause at that time I was at like, at like grade three or four piano and, uh, I got in and then they put me on tuba. And then that was my instrument for the next six years uh, at the school. So every single day I played tuba. But at that time, so that was grade seven, I, uh, I decided to start playing bass as well because I was like, okay, I'm playing tuba, I'm in the bass clef. Um, let me start playing bass. Um, so yeah, but, it, but funny, funnily enough with the, with the tuba thing, my mom didn't want me to play tuba. She was totally against it. And she kind of made it seem like it was it was like a bad thing because she wanted me playing trumpet because she played trumpet and like she wanted me playing like melodies and stuff, right? Because she was like, oh no, you want to be playing melodies. So 
it was, I remember this hilarious um, situation where it was me, my mom and my music teacher. She brought me in like the first, I think like the second day or something. This is back, back when my mom was more involved in like school stuff. Like a, a year or two after that, she was never involved in anything. But like, at that point, she was still like really trying to like get me get me going with trumpet. And I remember the the teacher was just like, "No, like he's got to do it. Like every band needs a tuba player. Like you're like the goalie of the team." Like, and um, and I cried. I was in grade seven. I swear I cried because I was like, "Oh my god!" I had to take this old like tuba home without a case, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Everyone's looking at me like I'm this loser with the tuba um and yeah and, and my mom was just like yeah i don't know it, it, it was a weird thing but then like six months into it i was like i love tuba like this is this is like i'm playing like all the bass parts and i was playing bass and then i'm like i i'm so happy to end up with that instrument for sure i thought your mom was gonna say like lincoln park doesn't have a tuba like what are we doing <laughs> yeah no she's just all about the solos and uh the leads you know but you know bass is where it's at so man, you, we're we're already four instruments in to to your your playing here, uh, and we're gonna add a, a few more. So where did the singing and the songwriting come into play? Quite a few years later. Yeah, so so all throughout high school was just bass and tuba. Um, I didn't really touch the guitar much, and I didn't sing much other than like you know singing in the car and like stuff like that. Like obviously, like I sang, but like I wasn't like oh I'm a singer. I'm gonna sing songs like. Uh, we had like a band in high school and we did like, you know, our like school talent shows and stuff. And I would sing like backup vocals. Like we did a, a CCR song in grade 12. And I remember just singing some backup vocals for that. But uh, yeah, it wasn't until after high school where me and Dan, the guitar player and Ready the Prince, um, we decided, okay, like, because we always used to jam, right? Me and him, I would bring my bass to his, his place and we would just jam like me and him, me on bass, him on guitar. And then we uh, we 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 heard of this band Rodrigo y Gabriela at that point, and we were so inspired by them that we were like, "Hey, we should just like start an acoustic duo, and like just be like this like badass like duo where we're like playing like songs, but we're like influenced by Rodrigo y Gabriela, but it's also like rock, and it's like yeah." So that's kind of like we just had this like aha moment where we're like, "Let's do this." Because it was, it was basically me and him at that stage where we were like the rest of the band at that point, like kind of went and did their own thing. And it was very clear, like him and I were like the ones that were still like jamming and wanting to do something for music. Because uh, we, we both like didn't know what we were doing, like in terms of like our post-secondary, like we weren't happy with where we were at. Um, we were like, let's try music. So yeah, that, that's kind of how it happened. So from there, I started playing guitar. So my mom at that point had just bought a new guitar uh, cause she was getting back into it. And so I had her guitar and I would, I actually learned on her new guitar and ba I had Dan there, right? He was already like a great guitar player. So he taught me a lot. And, uh, and, and then we kind of get, got to the point where we're like, okay, one of us has to sing now. And, uh, and yeah, I basically just won the job because I just sang more than him. And then I just became the singer, but I was like terrible at the start. Um, so yeah, but that, that's how it all started. So right after high school, we started the duo, we were called the Science Club. And we just started writing songs. And I basically learned how to sing by singing my own songs. So it was like a really great way to learn, for sure.
for some reason in most bands, it's the guitarist that's also the singer. I don't know why that is. Uh, were you inspired by some of the bands where the bass player was the lead singer? You know, someone like Rush or uh, uh, is it? Yeah, Primus. Uh, there's a yeah, there's a bunch of bands. A C Spot Run, the bass yeah. player is a singer. Uh, <clears throat> a a any of those bass bass led bands who were singing, uh, did they inspire you? 100%. I mean, Rush was my biggest in influence uh, bass playing wise. So it's funny, it wasn't it wasn't really the fact that Getty Lee sang that like influenced me so much. It was the fact that he like just his bass style. But then once I did uh, go back to playing bass, cause we, we had that whole phase of, of the science club there. And I was playing guitar and I actually thought like I was going to be a guitar player. But then um, we kind of like went through a couple of rehearsals with like a bass player and I was like playing like rhythm guitar. And then I just was like, I want to be playing bass. Like, what am I doing playing guitar? So yeah, like then I kind of realized again, like how much I love bass and I was like, okay, I love singing, but I also love bass. And so it was just like, it just made, it made a lot of sense for me to just go back to bass. But yeah, like Getty Lee as a bass player definitely inspired me. And then once I moved to uh, bass and singing, I was just kind of like, if Getty Lee can do it, I could do it. Like anything he's playing is harder. So, cause it, cause as you can imagine, playing bass and singing is very difficult at the beginning. Um, so I kind of, I needed that inspiration. He was definitely the guy for me who was like, okay, if he could do it, he's playing things 10 times harder than me. Like I can do this. So yeah, for sure. So you grew up just outside of Toronto. This is in North, North York, correct? So just like technically inside of Toronto, like right at the border where um, Toronto ends, like just before it ends uh, at Steele's, that's where I grew up. Yeah, Young and Seals. And that's North North York is what, what it's Yeah, called. that's North York. Yeah. So how much do you think growing up in North York um influenced you as a as a person and later on as a as a musician? I mean, North York, so like that's technically like the suburbs, right? So I'm I'm pretty far away from downtown. And um I think I just had like um like a lot of time on my hands <laughs> i wasn't too like busy doing things like you know i, I like at that time i had like you know a part-time job uh and i would have been in school but yeah like i think just being at home being the youngest uh in my family i guess i i had a lot of time to myself and um and i wanted to kind of do something different and um i don't know if i don't know if growing up in north york had too much to do with it maybe, maybe the fact that i went to the school I went to, which was, you know, pretty close to where I lived and that's an art school. So like learning all that I learned uh, there about music, even though at the time, like when I was, when I was in the program, I, I didn't really think I was going to be a musician, but I learned so much that ended up contributing to um, the musician I am today, like definitely gave me that foundation. So I think more than anything, it would have been like the fact that I was at that school for sure. If I met you as a kid, let's say you were six years old or eight years old or 10 years old, and I asked you at one of those ages what you wanted to be when you grew up, uh, what would you say? A lot of people, that's before they they figured out they wanted to be a musician. Yeah, like I think at that time I was like, I was really into sports. So like there was a big phase. I don't know if it was like as young as 10, maybe a little bit older than 10, where I was like, I'm going to be a football player. I uh, I, I loved football. And I, uh, I definitely like, I started playing football. It didn't last long, but um, yeah, there was, that would have been probably what I wanted to do. Yeah. And you, you mentioned to me uh, 
before this interview that you love sports. There's some sports teams that you adore that you maybe spend too much time and energy cheering <laughs> on. Uh, which which teams are those? Are they all football or are there other sports? So it's basically one football team and then one basketball team. So the, the basketball team are the is the Toronto Raptors. Oh, you have um, to. Yeah. You... Yeah. I love the, I love the Raptors. And then the uh, the football team is the, the Kansas City Chiefs. But I, I was a diehard Chiefs fan before they were any good. So I like I since I was like 11 years old. So I went through all the phases of them being terrible. And now they're like a team that wins all the time. So it's pretty it's pretty fun. But I uh, yeah, those are those are my teams. I uh, definitely spend too much time <laughs> following them. But, you know, it's um, it's cool. Like what I've realized lately is that like I really admire um, athletes, especially, you know, just like hearing the interviews and like what they go through day to day, I can kind of relate to my life, just like the discipline that it takes to be like a great athlete and to be a team that like wins is like really inspiring to me. And um, yeah, I just like, I love hearing about the growth of, of teams and, and athletes and yeah. So that's kind of what I'm taking out of it now. That's how I justify all the time I spend on it. I'm like, no, this is inspiring. <laughs> yeah. We can spin things in a good light anyway. You know, uh, <laughs> if I met you at say 12 or 13, who would I meet, be meeting? What were you like at, at that age? 12 or 13. Uh, I was probably pretty awkward. Um, I, um, I was a awkward yet probably uh, like, I was kind of like one of those awkward kids who was like funny awkward so i kind of made it work but yeah i was pretty shy uh you know pretty awkward but at the same time like um i don't know i, I to be honest i don't even i don't even know if i can even remember how i was back then but funny I, uh, awkward is better than just awkward so i was funny awkward yeah i wasn't just awkward i was definitely funny awkward but like i was not um like now i feel like i'm a lot more I, I I was a bartender for four years, so like I developed like a lot more social skills and just like, uh, but I never used to be like that. I used to be a lot more, um, just like didn't know how to approach situations and, but yeah, that that, that would have that's the best way I can describe myself back then. Yeah, as a bartender, you're gonna make better tips if you're at least slightly, uh, you know, not socially awkward. You know, the more awkward yeah. you are as a bartender, the more money you're gonna make. Can you yes. can you remember the first concert that you attended? Okay, so the real answer to that is uh, is the Backstreet Boys because my my mom just dragged us uh or dragged me i mean it was for my sisters they were just like diehard backstreet boys fans my sister danielle was like in love with nick carter uh and uh but I, she was super young but um I, I must have been like maybe five or six years old i have no idea but i just remember remember being at that concert and it was just screaming the entire concert like it was insane uh but yeah that is like my first memory it was pretty it was pretty crazy now that I'm thinking back, I haven't thought about it in a long time. But other than that, like the other concert that really sticks out is um, uh, Green Day on the American Idiot Tour. I was probably in like grade six or something like that. It's 2004. And I remember, yeah. Yeah. And like that, that concert, I remember distinctly like, whoa. Like I remember seeing like Mosh Pit and all this crazy stuff from like the the upper deck. And um, I remember the the people in front of me were smoking weed. And I had no idea what was going on or what it was. And um, 
that was probably like the first time I ever got high because they were just smoking weed the whole show and I had no idea what was going on. I was like, what is this? Like, what are they doing in front of me here? Like all this smoke. But yeah, that, that like, those are the two memories that stick out. Like the opening band, I wish I remembered the opening band. I should look it up because I remember that show and it still sticks, sticks in my head of like that opening band and they just got the crowd going and like there was just circle pits and it was just like craziness. You're seeing all the people like crowd surf and then get like sent to the back and then come back in and crowd surf. I was just like, what is going on? And then Green Day killed it. So yeah, that's like another show that I really remember. I, I feel like for Green Day, it would, it would be like Rise Against or someone that would open. Like that seems like the, yeah. the kind of fit. We, we, we'll we have to go check afterwards uh, the exact for show sure. in Toronto who was opening. But uh, a few years ago, I I had tickets to see Muse and I had tickets to see Green Day and they were supposed to be a couple months apart. And then one of them had to reschedule and they rescheduled to be the day after the other. So I saw Muse and then the very next day in Toronto, I saw uh, Green Day. So back to back wow. within 24 hours, I saw both bands and Green Day. It's them. It's all about just like the raw energy and, and the crowd participation yeah. is is what I got. Yeah. Out of it. For sure. That's yeah. They're, they're great. Just totally like just walking around the stage. Yeah. It's all coming back now. <laughs> I, I actually just read today that Green Day next year is going to do a massive world tour that celebrates um, both their albums, Dookie and American Idiot. And it's it's something uh, it's like the, the 25th anniversary or 30th anniversary of the album. I forget what what it is, but they're they're going to do a massive world tour. I think maybe they play both those albums in their entirety and then their hits around that as well. So a big, big Green Day tour coming up next year. That's awesome. That's awesome. So if if you and I were friends at 16, if I if I went over to North York and you invited me over to listen to music, what albums would you be spinning <clears throat> at 16? So you're in high school here, just figuring things out. What do you play? <laughs> high school. Uh... Well, I remember in high school, I was listening more so to like my little MP3 player. Um, so I don't know how many like full albums, but like a lot of classic rock at that point. Cause that was like my heavy bass playing stage. So that would have been like Zeppelin, Rush, Pink Floyd. Um, a lot of that, like hmm, 16. It's hard to kind of remember what I would have been listening to at 16 because then there was a phase where I went through. Um, you had a little hip hop phase too at some point, right? Yeah, I had a hip hop phase around that time too. That's right. Yeah, I had. Um, you got to blame your I mom for that, right? With the, <laughs> the Eminem. Yeah, movie. Eminem. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it It's the, uh, I went through a really big kind of, actually at that time, I went through a big um, house phase as well. Because at that point, like house was like really popular um and i have to thank my friend uh andrea baldale i gotta give her a shout out she used to make me these little mixtapes and she would put all these like classic like house tracks on there so i was really into house at that point too just honestly like anything and everything and i've, I've kind of always been like that i've just always listened to all styles of music um so yeah i mean we could have put on anything but yeah definitely maybe maybe some pink floyd um just kind of trip out a bit that would have been probably the way to go at <laughs> 16 for sure. My uh, my favorite album of all time is Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. 
So, you know, okay. they have, they have the great, they have dark side of the moon. That's great. They have uh, the wall. That's great. But wish you were here. Uh, there's just five songs on that album, but the first and last song together are 25 minutes. So uh, it's still yeah. a, still a lengthy album. What, what are some of the jobs that you've had over the years? Um, our listeners just love to know that the guests here that are successful musicians, they're real people. They have struggled as well. They have done some shit jobs. Uh, they they find it entertaining. So can you share any jobs you've had over the years? Um, so my first job was a, uh, a seafood clerk at Metro, which is a grocery store here. Um, so that was like maybe 15 I don't remember how old that was, but yeah, that was my first job. That was definitely like a, a, a smelly job. I would leave, the, I would leave the uh, grocery store smelling like fish uh, every shift. So that was pretty funny. So I w- that was my first job. And then I kind of moved to um, cashier at no frills. So sticking in the, um, in the grocery store life. And then I moved to construction, which was, probably the best thing I ever did because it really taught me what like, you know, hard work is. And, um, did it help you bulk my... up for your NFL career or? <laughs> well, you know what? I had already given up on the NFL career because the NFL career that ended in grade nine when I broke my arm, uh, because I was like pretty small at that age and I was not big enough to be playing football. So I broke my arm and then I, I, I get it. I ended up being a little bit taller in my, in my older years. And yeah, that's when construction came in. So that, that was uh, a couple of summers of construction was um, in between like going to university and then dropping out of university. I would go and work construction and then I'd try to go back to university because I'd be like, I can't do construction anymore. And then I would drop out again. And that's, that's, that's kind of what I went through. And, and yeah, I, I and then I went to uh, then I went to bartending pretty soon after that, which is what I did for like a lot of my like early twenties, um, which was not a struggle. Bartending is is pretty fun, at least at the bar I was working at. Um, but yeah, I've definitely done some, and then you know little jobs in between, and you know I could I could still use the. Uh, it's not like I I'm above any of those jobs at this stage, you know. Like I I definitely. Uh, could be working those at any point. So yeah, it's, uh, you, know, you gotta make money somehow. That's it. Do, do those jobs make you appreciate now when you're on tour and you're playing shows and you get on stage and you know, you're, you're doing what you love and the crowd is reacting in a positive way. Does it make, does it make you take a moment and appreciate that there are different ways of making money and they're not all equal. You know, you're there doing what you love and you think back to like coming home smelling like fish or like digging a ditch or something. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I mean, and think about where, where, where our band's at. It's like, not to get too into it, but it's like, we're not really making anything, <laughs> you know, like we're, we're just trying to, trying to make enough to, to break even kind of, kind of idea. So in, in terms of that, like, I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful to even have the opportunity to, to play. Like it doesn't even feel like, like it's like a, a financial thing at all because it's, it's really not at this stage, uh, at least in, um, in ready to print. Like I play, I play music in like, you know, restaurants and bars around Toronto. That is, uh, is, is more of a financial thing. So it's like covers and stuff like that. So that's a bit of a different mindset, but like, yeah, ready to print is like, it's not even really even about money at all um so yeah but like definitely when i when it comes to uh to those jobs i mean yeah you 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 learn what it means to really work so 
um, still to this day, I think about about those jobs and, you know, yeah, it's it's important to have that that foundation for sure. Yeah, you guys are on the uh, upwards trajectory of the band where it's essentially like you've started a business and it's like you have to start, yeah. you know, the first first few years, it's like you're investing into the business because you have yeah. a long term vision and it's you're you're getting better at your craft and, and you're making contacts yeah. and and you're building a fan base, you know, one fan at a time and it's compounding and eventually you hope to hit a tipping point and and that's where the money comes in it's like it starts with the passion and putting in the work and developing the craft and that's where you guys are now and you're starting to see um you know kind of the 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 good things come around with a a, a great album great sounding album bigger tours bigger shows so i think it looks like everything's on the right trajectory yeah no totally i mean um yeah i mean that's the thing for us if it, if it was about the money uh, it would have never really made sense to even do it in the first place. You know, like anyone getting into the music industry for the money is like, you, you're better off choosing a different industry. <laughs> uh, that's the advice I'll give you, at least as an artist. Um, you know, so yeah, but th that's that's the goal in, in the end is to be able to support ourselves off it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really difficult to get to that stage. Um, but that's not a reason to necessarily stop either. You know, there's so much more. Uh, than financial gain in doing something like this. So, yeah. And how early on did you know that you had something special to offer? That if you actually continue to work at your craft, if you took this seriously, if you put in the hours, if you stuck to the plan, that this could actually be a career? You know, right away, when I started writing songs, I I, I had this feeling that I, um, I finally found kind of what I was meant to do. And... Um, it was just right away I knew I was like, this is it. Uh, like I'm, I'm dropping out of school. I'm not going to spend my days, you know, in a lecture hall for eight hours or whatever it may be. I'm going to, I'm going to practice for eight hours a day or, you know, all day, even longer. Um, because that's, I know what I want to do. And I know that if I can do that, I'll just continue to get better. So yeah, right away, because, and it wasn't like I was uh, a good singer or anything like that. Like, I wasn't any good, but I, I knew it was right. And I, and it, I felt like I was good, even though I wasn't, I felt like I was like, Oh, this is, this has got to be good because this is like, so, uh, it was just so me, it was just so real. So it's just like, I don't even know. I, I didn't even think about it too much. I just, I just was very stubborn. Like, and like, I had like a lot of, uh, pushback from my, my, my mom, especially, ironically, the musician in the family. Um, that's why I say she'll never call herself a musician, even though she is, because, you know, most parents, they they don't want their kids going into uh, certain art forms, you know, because it's, it's really tough to make it uh, financially work. And but I always stress to her that, like, you know, if I'm ever going to make it in music, I have to be focused on this. I have to be putting my all into it. Um, but yeah, she, it, it's it's difficult. It's hard to convince others when you have such a, a passion that like maybe doesn't make sense financially. Um, so yeah, my, that was, that's kind of another thing that always drove me too, is to kind of prove like, this is not, this isn't about money. This is about kind of like my passion. So I, uh, I wanted to, and it, it, it drove me to, to practice more and to, to try and get better. Um, so yeah. 
So let's let's dive into Ready the Prince. So we already talked that uh, in 2010, you and and Daniel started the acoustic duo, the Science Club, and then a few years later, 2012, Ready the Prince forms. Uh, what what is the progression between the acoustic duo and then getting the idea to do a trio that is not acoustic? So so we had the acoustic duo and. We, we, we played some shows and uh, we had a, a, another band that we were really good friends with. Um, they were called The Family at the time and uh, they had us open for them a couple of times. And <clears throat> so we, we kind of had just experienced how like a band um, is just such a different level um, when you have like the drums and the bass and like the live experience. Um, even though like what we were doing on acoustics was like, was unique and um and still like people were into it um for dan and i it just always felt like we were meant to to be um in a band as well because to, to be completely honest we still play acoustically but we play covers now as an acoustic duo so we still do it in a lot of the 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 things that we kind of like the styles and techniques we developed in the science club we're still using to this day. So it, it, it worked out well, we actually still get to do both. But uh, yeah, we just knew we wanted to take things to the next level live. We wanted to be, we wanted to be a rock band uh, essentially. And it's just, you can rock on acoustics, but like there's just, there's just a limit where how hard you can rock and uh, Raju and Gabriella rock. So they, they hit it, but like uh, we, we knew we kind of wanted to go because like, I did play bass and Dan always played electric. So it just felt like, we were kind of playing instruments that we weren't naturally, you know, like we were kind of out of our comfort zone, which was cool, but we wanted to go back to what we were comfortable with. Um, so yeah, that was the progression after, after a couple of years of the science club and, and me and Dan always talk about it. We had like our last science club gig was like our best gig. It was just like, there was maybe like 20 people there, but it was just like, people were just so into it. Like we just, we had totally captivated the audience and it was, uh, and it was just like the best, like last science club gig. Um, but like, even though like people were into it, we knew we were like, we're going to, we're going to be a band. Like we're going to do this. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's when we decided, uh, we, we knew about Jordan cause Jordan went to our high school. So our first dr uh, drummer, Jordan Ross, he, uh, he was two years younger than us. So we, we literally waited until he graduated. Uh, it was like the day, like his last day of school, we went and picked him up from school and like brought him to my house. And, and that was like one of the first Ready the Prince jams. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's kind of how it all started. So I love the band name Ready the Prince. Is there a story behind that? It sounds like it sounds like it's something epic, like there's a, <laughs> a battle or a war and it's like Ready the Prince. Like, I, I don't know where that comes from. Totally. I mean, yeah, like the story. So me and Jordan at that time, we were huge Kings of Leon fans. So, I mean, I know that's where the the Prince aspect comes from. Like we, we wanted to, to use that element, um, like the royalty element that they kind of had in their name. We, we, were, we were trying to find a way to bring it into our name because they were just like our biggest influence at that point. Um, and uh, so we were just working on names and then the it was a three-way phone call between me dan and jordan where we actually came up with the name because jordan and i had been talking and we were like okay like the ready prince like that's the name that's the band name the ready prince and we're like this is it like that that there's there's a there's a meaning there like we understand like okay 
the Ready Prince. And we called Dan and we told him on the three day call, we're like, what do you think about this name? And then he was just like, what about Ready the Prince instead? And then we were just like, that's it. It was like, it was like instant. We we're like, yeah, that's the one. And this is after like a month of like brainstorming, going through dictionaries, like just trying to find this name, right? And uh, so when he said it, credit to Daniel Prada, he said it and, uh, and we were just like, yeah, that's, that's the name. And I remember back in 2008 when Kings of Leon, so they put out their album only by night or only by the night. And yeah. uh, man, the one-two punch of the first two singles, Sex on Fire and You Somebody, were so undeniable. Like those two singles, <laughs> if any band has one of those singles, that's like a career yeah. maker. And they had the two singles yeah. back to back and they they took over the world from those two yeah. singles moving forward. So I was a huge fan. And I think the opening song on that album, Is It Closer? It just has like, yeah. the biggest drum sound just incredible uh, that's where i became a fan do you remember uh, at what point it maybe it's a little later that you became a fan so my sister would be the reason i'm a kings of leon fan because she was a huge kings of leon fan and she i think she started uh listening to them like probably around that time you know like because that was when like much music was still around so and she was listening to like the radio a lot, like listening to like 102.1 The Edge here in Toronto at that at that point. And um, so she she was listening to Kings of Leon, but then she got into their early stuff. And that's kind of where she was like, you got to listen to their early stuff too. And um, so that's kind of how I was introduced. Like Only By The Night was the record that like she heard, but then it was all the early stuff that really I fell in love with um it's a little and, more indie uh, sounding right the early stuff yeah okay yeah the early stuff is so is so different from only by the night and it was just like that raw songwriting that emotion like they're just like an incredible band and uh yeah like there's i love all their their early records and and i had no idea but jordan was already listening to them all throughout high school so jordan i think actually like more so at the time those records were coming out he was he was kind of in tune with those records or maybe a little later because he he is younger but like he like i will give jordan credit he and he is like this with all artists like he always discovers artists before they're actually like mainstream like he he's just like that like he always kind of sees that in the artist so he was already knowing about kings and before they even mainstream listening to the early stuff so he yeah, should be uh, really, an really A&R guy. He should be an A&R guy if he has that ear to, to discover oh, yeah. music. He, yeah. He's got incredible ear and taste in music. Like, it's, it's really, really cool. He's introduced me to so many artists, for sure. So we we have very loyal listeners here at the podcast that some of them listen to every single interview regardless of who the guest is so sometimes it's you know the guest the fan base comes out to listen to just that guest and then they're gone uh for our listeners that are tuning in today that are maybe discovering the band for the first time how would you describe the sound of the band so i think one of the things that that stands out the most to me about the band is it is very hard to put the band in a box to to pigeonhole that oh you guys are this genre or you sound like that band it it you you guys it seems like you've given yourselves permission to just whatever feels good to you you play and then somehow because it's you guys and your distinct voice and each of the musicians on their instrument, it, it always still sounds like ready the Prince, regardless of if it's insanely heavy or more acoustic or catchy or whatever. So, uh, 
this is probably very hard to answer, but how would you describe the sound for our new listeners so that we can send them out to listen to your music after this episode? <laughs> yeah, you just totally described like the like most difficult, but also best part of our band, probably. Like it's been the most difficult aspect of our band because it's been so hard for us to like find like a scene or like for like people in the industry to like know like how to market us or whatever you know like it's just because we're so every song seems to be so different but like yeah we um i guess the best way to describe it is like three musicians um playing like i guess just playing what what feels like natural like each each musician in the band um is always kind of bringing their um their taste into each song so you get dan on the guitar and you know what he grew up listening to and what inspires him and the way he plays no matter what the like style of the song is he's bringing that into the song uh and then but maybe he'll play a clean guitar versus a distorted guitar but it's like it's still the same kind of play style so like that's kind of like i guess the best way to describe it it's like we're still playing the same, but like maybe like the tones might be different in certain songs or, or whatever. So I, I honestly, I don't know how to describe our sound, but I think now with this album, it's a little bit more in one direction. I think uh, we're, we're definitely like a heavy band. Um, that's how I would describe us. Um, yeah, but we're a trio. I think that's a big aspect to our sound is like, is the three, the three instruments and, um, I think that is unique to a certain extent uh, because we're, you know, you can really kind of hear what we're all doing on our instruments. And I think that's cool for people to hear too. So yeah, like a heavy rock band with, uh, that is a trio. That is that's the only way I can describe it. Basically what we're telling them is just go listen to the band, go to Spotify, yeah. <laughs> go buy the album and, uh, yeah. and see, see for yourself what it, what it is. You can find out. Yeah. Let us know what, what it is. Cause we're still trying to figure out what we are. <laughs> So you guys release the RTP EP in 2015. So there's three songs, uh, Your Way or Mine, Drunk Without a Drug, and Egyptian. Uh, I went and listened to the band's entire discography, all the singles, the EPs, the albums. And I was really impressed with this debut. I thought all three songs were amazing. I, I thought you guys for... A debut release, you guys already had a really developed sound and, and great songwriting and... Uh, so I was impressed. So I want to start by saying that, that, that you guys, uh, pr produced, uh, you produced high quality music songs, recordings right from the start. So I don't know if you have a, a response to that at all, but usually it takes time for a band to kind of find themselves. Well, thank you. I mean, a, a huge credit is, uh, goes to Anton DeLost, the producer on that EP. Um, and so, so he, he's a really uh, successful producer and, but at that stage he was still producing out of his parents' basement in uh, London, Ontario. So it was really awesome how we, we ended up getting with, uh, Anton. So our drummer at the time, Stefan Lobis, uh, him and Anton were friends from London. Because uh, they both grew up in London, and um, and Anton was recording Stefan's band um, throughout high school and stuff like that. So yeah, like it's a pretty significant um, fact because when we started working with Anton for that EP, that's what eventually led to to Anton recording uh, with Cleopatra because there was like the connection between us and Cleopatra, and then 
and then everything that's happened with Cleopatra from that EP, and then like it, it, it like that that whole recording process like led to so much, and um, but it really is a testament to Anton, like his his ability as a producer, like he really like knew what to do with our songs, because like even still to this day, but like especially back then, like we we were very much like a live band, like we didn't think too much about what we were doing production wise on recordings. So to have someone come in and kind of take the reins with the production just to kind of help us like make like what we were playing live in the room like make sense on a on a recording um, sonically uh, was just super helpful. Like, um, yeah, I think uh, he, he, that really comes to mind. And and at that stage too, like we're, like Stefan being in the band, I think we had a we had a bit bit of a different sound because of that. Um, there was a little bit, uh, a little bit more structure to what we were doing. I was really into the songwriting at that point. Um, was different. It, it wasn't as um, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. It was just a little bit more structured, a little bit more structured songwriting, a little bit more on the pop side, I guess. Uh, there's also a fourth song on that EP that isn't on Spotify. It's called Heart, and uh, that was like it's. That is the one song. So we do have a line where we say, you know what, this song is too far out of the sound. So then that would be a song, uh, the song Heart. It is not on Spotify because uh, Dan and I decided it was just too far out uh, of the sound to kind of have it on Spotify with the rest of the songs. But it is out there. It's on YouTube and stuff like that. So you could check out, and you should check it out too because there is a fourth song to this EP. Um, and um, yeah. In what way is that song too far out? Like too poppy or something? <sighs> yeah, it is just like, well, first of all, <laughs> almost every writer of the Prince song ever ever written has, has been in a minor key. And that song is in a major key. And it is very like R&B, uh, almost like, um, yeah, really pop. Uh, it's just it's just so different. At the time, like when the RTP EP came out, it, it definitely fit. Um, but then once we like, once we started like wanting to be like a, or wanted to establish ourselves as like a as like a heavier rock band, especially with you know Cleopatric. Like there was a, a shift that happened when we first met Cleopatric and saw them play in this like really small venue in Toronto, and there was like no one there. It was just us and them. We just ended up being on a bill. There's like maybe four people there, and when we saw these guys play, it changed us, uh, and we 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 kind of knew like like what they were doing was like what we also wanted to be doing and like what we had kind of done in the past with, with when we were originally a band um, before the RTP EP, we're more of a raw kind of like rock band. And then when we saw Cleopatra play, it kind of made us kind of like realize we wanted to go back to that. And, um, and then that's when we kind of just decided, you know what, heart just isn't that. It's just not who, what, what we are in terms of like that, that style. So, yeah. So online, I'm seeing this New Rock Mafia Collective. Uh, it, can you share with our listeners what that is? And Cleopatric is involved in that as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So Cleopatric is involved in that. Uh, also, another band called Zigmentality is involved in that. So we, um, a few years back, so this would have been 2018, around that time, we started uh, what's called New Rock Mafia, which is... Um, Basically, you know, those three bands uh, coming together to create um, like a scene, a community. Um, uh, and we just felt like there weren't a lot of rock bands uh, that were kind of like 
doing the same thing we were doing in terms of like sound and like we just kind of all felt like we kind of fit perfectly together and we were all from around the same area like in Ontario so like we kind of knew like hey we could play shows together we can meet up and do like you know live streams especially like during the pandemic that was a big thing too is like getting together and being able to put um to put out exciting content um for for everyone to kind of like enjoy um and create a community i mean that that's really what it came down to is like we want people to know like hey if you come to a new york mafia show like this is what you're gonna get and you're gonna you know see other people that you know like because it's like a, it's a big, it's just a one big community so that that was that's kind of where that all kind of came from um and it's it's it was a, it's been a huge part of uh, the growth of our band and um it's really cool to have that kind of that type of foundation and and because there is still like uh the same people kind of who are involved in that community are still like some of the people who have been following us uh through all these years so yeah it's been a great thing for sure what what thoughts memories emotions come to you when you think back to that debut ep that really kick-started this amazing you know, journey that you've been on since then. I mean, it must have created new opportunities, finally having music as a like digital uh, business card that you could hand out. It's one thing if you're only playing live, it's like, how do you, how do you share with a, a manager or label or someone that you're great if the only way they can, you know, experience that is live and you know, most bands don't play that often or, you know, whoever you want to impress is in a different city. They're not going to come see you or you don't tour there. So what, what comes to you when you think back to this EP and maybe the opportunities it started to present? Well, you know, I got to bring it back to, there was an EP before that, that I have to bring it back to because we actually, we had an EP before that, that is, is also not online because we made the decision that we just didn't, don't think that it's kind of like, up to that standard but like yeah the, the ep before that would be the one that really kind of did that for us where we finally have music where we can go and get shows um so this ep at the time it was just called ready the prince but now we call it the lost ep it's on Bandcamp, and um that's like the original like those are the first songs that we wrote as a band essentially uh dan jordan and i and um yeah like that when we had that it was really cool because at that time, like, I think we put it on maybe like SoundCloud. I don't even remember what was around back then, but it, there was no streaming services. Like we're pretty old. Like we, we had a CD. I think, I think there was SoundCloud though, because I remember we were able to like share it to uh, like venues and stuff like that around the city that we were trying to get shows at. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it opens the doors to just be able to play more shows. And that was kind of really all we were thinking about back then. Like we weren't thinking about anything but like just like playing shows <laughs> and it, it was it was a simpler time even even when the rtp ep came out like we didn't even put it on spotify like even though spotify was around like we had no idea um about like we are like the least like business-minded band uh still to this day that is the biggest struggle for us um is just to try and make that like make sense in our heads because it's really only ever been about like the music and like playing shows and like having the opportunity to play shows um, and just make great music. So yeah, I mean, it definitely was eye-opening though because um, that's when we really realized we had a future for sure. It was with that EP because um, Anton did such a great job with the production and then people really liked the EP and, and that's kind of when we first started getting like, like true fans that weren't just like uh, friends or like family members or friends of friends. It was like, 
just like people from like anywhere that maybe stumbled upon it, which was like not a lot of people at that point because it was more of like a word of mouth thing. But yeah, like it was like, whoa, okay, we can we can do this. Like we can uh, we can actually like make music that people enjoy. So we've mentioned that that EP, it's it's a little less heavy. There's some more apparent, you know, bigger pop hooks on it. Would you say that? A, some of your softer influences like John Mayer or Coldplay were more apparent on that EP. And, um, you know, maybe B, you were still trying to figure out your sound at that point. Yeah, we, we were definitely trying to figure out our sound. Like we, we were we were always trying to figure out our sound. But yeah, back then, I will say, I think Stefan had a big role to play because it was just Stefan's style. Like he, he, he would always bring in like a little bit more of that... Um, that slower groove to the songs. So, cause we had like versions of, uh, we had, so Your Way of Mine was originally written with Jordan and it was like a full on like rock song. Like it, it was not the type of song it is now. So that's like a, that is like the second version of Your Way of Mine. And so it's just, it, it's, it's Stefan's drum style that really kind of brought those songs and uh, they kind of gave them that, that, the vibe that they have. Like even Drunk Without a Drug was originally written heavier uh faster uh but then you know stefan's the type of guy he'll just come on with this beat and it just changes the whole thing i love r&b so when he plays that stuff like it just it brings the r&b out of me and like i just want to sing like that and 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 then dan also loves r&b and dan's also like this type of player he can play over anything so all of a sudden we're playing like these kind of more slow grooves and um yeah like it just kind of was what made sense. Like I think with our band, it's like the players in the band is what really gives the sound uh, in a lot of ways for sure. So speaking of the players in the band, uh, one thing that stood out on that EP is the guitar work, man. There is some tasty guitar work on there. Uh, what would you say that Daniel Prada brings to the table for the band? Daniel Prada brings like the... <laughs> the unique element to our band. Like, I think he is so creative um, and it's very natural for him to be creative. It, it's almost harder for him not to be creative and unique. Like, it, like <laughs> we're, we're such a good match because Dan is the type of guy, he brings in like these guitar parts that have like not a lot of structure, like, <laughs> it's just him playing right and i'm the one who is able to kind of like hear what he's doing and be like okay that sounds like a verse that sounds like a chorus like let's let, like him and i together is what makes us um a band that is like unique but also uh structured in a way um so yeah like he, he's incredible he uh, he only knows how to be creative um and sometimes it's too creative. Like what's cool about this new album is like, I finally like tried to sing over his like craziest guitar stuff. Like Sabretooth five years ago, I would have been like, Dan, like, I can't, I can't. Sing where where do I come in here? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he's, and he's written parts like that in the past. And I just been like, I can't sing over this man. I'm sorry. But then it, it, it as we got older, I was like, hell yeah. Like I let me try. And I also just got to the point where I had the technical ability to sing over something like that, because like you have to have a certain technical ability to sing over that, that guitar work. So yeah, like that, that's, um, 
I don't even remember. I think your question was like, what does Dan bring to the band? Yeah, he just, he brings the the special sauce. That's, uh, he's, the, he's the X factor for sure. He brings, he brings the table to the table. Uh, so Absolutely. that, that, that EP came out eight years ago. And even back then it, there's just incredible guitar work all over that EP. <laughs> and I have some kind words sent in from Daniel Prada <laughs> guitarist uh, here for uh, ready the Prince. So this is what uh, Dan has to say. He says over the past 10 years, I've had the privilege of calling Steve, my bandmate. And over the past 15 years, my brother and my best friend. We were just a couple of kids with big dreams jamming out to Danny California. Good song. Good song. We were uh, now many years later, we've released so much music and have toured the world together. Steve's care, compassion and selflessness has influenced me in ways he will never know. His passion and drive to always better himself as a musician and a person inspires me constantly. And his love and work ethic is what holds this band together. Grateful to know such a beautiful being. Anyways, love you, brother. So that's from Dan. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Didn't think I was going to be getting emotional on the, on the podcast, but yeah. Dan's a very heartfelt guy when he, uh, <clears throat> when he speaks from the heart. So, yeah. So let's dive into uh, the next EP. So Note to Self EP comes out two years later in 2017. So three songs, Dead Roads, Cliff Diver, and Note to Self. Man, there are some great harmonies on this album. There's great harmonies in a lot of the Ready the Prince songs. Has hearing harmonies and singing harmonies come easy to you? just from the start or is it something you've had to work on it's something that i've developed because that ep was also produced by anton devos and he brought all those harmonies to the table at that for that ep <clears throat> he is like a wizard with vocal production and like vocal harmonies and he yeah he, he just heard all those hooks um and he was like hey like let's let's add out harmony over this hook um and he kind of like really like I learned a lot even just from recording with him because I would kind of take that to our next recordings. Um, Cause then after, once we started working with different producers, it was kind of more, um, I kind of then took the reins for the harmonies and started really thinking about harmonies. So yeah, the, it's definitely been something that's developed. It's, it's not something that I used to really understand. And, but now I, I do like, I hear harmonies now. Um, when I'm working on demos for songs, like I'm always like, okay, yeah, there's definitely gotta be a harmony on this hook. So it's just something naturally that I've developed. Uh, and yeah, but that EP definitely Anton was, was hearing that stuff out for sure. So we have a comment sent in from a fan. So his Twitter handle is at STSRHT. And here's his question. He says he has beautiful tonality. I wonder how he takes care of his voice. Mm. Any tricks, I, any insider oh, information? Yeah. You know, this is the uh, this is the the biggest probably uh, I guess thing that people don't maybe don't know about it is like how much thought and care goes into taking care of your voice. Uh, that is something I've been focused on and trying to figure out like throughout um, the entirety of Ready the Prince because uh, at, like the beginning of the band, I used to uh, I used to be like just singing with terrible technique, and um, halfway through a show, I'd be like losing my voice already. Cause I'd just be up there like, 
raw, just like screaming my head off, trying to just get these notes to come out, like trying to extend my range and try and like, I, I'm a very passionate singer, but back then it was like passion and zero technique. And uh, it just came to the point where I was just like, I got to figure this out. So yeah, I mean, eventually I started learning more techniques and, and I'm still to this day developing my, my voice, but like the biggest thing is, um, I'm also, I'm actually a vocal teacher now. So I, I do teach, I teach vocals now and I teach these techniques that I've learned and like, I guess philosophies behind it. But the biggest thing is just, um, is just to try and control, like try to learn how to sing with emotion, but like be really controlled and like not sing with any tension uh, and try to let your voice, um, let your voice be flexible and, uh, and not strain it if you can but i mean sometimes you have to if you want to get <laughs> certain certain sounds so I, I will say there's a big difference between singing live and singing in the studio uh singing live you have to really focus on technique if you want to be able to get through even like in this still is a challenge on tour but like even getting through like back-to-back -back shows is, it can be difficult you know um especially singing with you know Rock, rock is is difficult. It is loud on stage, and it, 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 that is the hardest thing for the singer because you can't hear yourself. So, yeah, still to this day, I am trying to learn. But I will say, okay, number one tip then is um, is keeping your voice well rested. Uh, you need to you need to get sleep. You need to uh, you need to preserve that that the the instrument, and uh, that's the biggest thing I, I will say that affects my voice for sure. And one thing, I guess a couple things that make it harder for you is that uh, you guys do a lot of touring. So it's just a lot of shows, you know, so it's if if you're having some challenges with your voice, it's like you might have two or three more days to go. And also with your music, it's it's intense. There's some screaming, which must be harder mm. on the voice. So there's a couple of things that work work against <laughs> you as well. For sure. It's it's really, really tough. I, like. I, when I started singing, I was singing like a complete octave lower. Um, I had to develop like a, my whole like higher octave. So like, it's extra challenging for me because when my voice isn't at 100%, I, I'm in a lot of ways um, like just singing unnaturally because I can't really tap into those techniques. So yeah, like I, I don't drink any alcohol on the road. I don't smoke. I don't like, I try to get as much sleep as I can, even though I'm not the best sleeper on the road. Um, but yeah, I have to, I have to be really kind of diligent with that stuff because even like, like the, the a drop of alcohol and maybe this is more mental than it is anything, but like it, it can throw off my whole set. Um, so like, yeah, it's, it's really tough, but I've been stubborn about it for so many years. Like, I'm like, no, I'm going to sing these songs exactly like how I recorded them. And even through singing covers, that's been a huge uh, development in my voice is like singing like three sets of covers in a night. Um, and like, I, I always like, I never like changing keys of songs. So I would always force myself to kind of figure out how to sing these songs. So yeah, it, it's, it's tough. And yeah, this new album is like even harder to sing than anything else. So it's like, I'm, I'm getting my ass kicked uh, on tour for sure. Is uh, Sabretooth the hardest of the songs to sing? <laughs> Seems like it would be. Uh, yeah, it, it's very difficult. Very difficult. It, it, again, another example of like, I will I will never be able to sing that uh, live like how it is on the recording. Like it is, if, if people were there for when I recorded that, it was, uh, 
I was like literally lightheaded <laughs> after each take. Just crazy. Like it is, um, it is definitely intense, but there's like a certain emotion like on the record that I needed to get. But live, like it's, it's different. It's different. There's so much other energy and emotion happening. So, but uh, I'm still working on that. You know, like it's going to be a work in progress for the next couple of years with that song. Like it has been for all our songs. Like I, I didn't sing, you know, lightning nearly as well on the record as I can now, for example. Note to Self is the perfect example of a song where if you listen to the record, you can hear how bad my technique is and how much I'm straining. Um, and now when I sing it live, it's like I sing it with great technique. But with that being said, there's there's a certain charm to the bad technique that uh, that gives the song like a little bit more soul. So, you know, it's it's really all subjective, but um, I'm still I'm still learning how to sing my songs is, is I guess is the thing. Yeah, you, you nailed it. Sabertooth is definitely the hardest. So after that EP, you guys went on to release just a bunch of singles between 2018 and 2021. So Torn Up in 2018, uh, All the Love I Have to Give, Tina, Paralysis, and PB&J in 2019, Regicide in 2020, Pray and Lightning in 2021. So all those songs have over 100,000 plays just on Spotify alone, which is like a shocking amount of plays. And then the three the three songs, Lightning, Torn Up, and PB&J have between 400,000 and 800,000 plays on Spotify. That is, in, there's like massive, massive radio singles from like multi-platinum sell, selling artists that don't have that many plays for their songs on Spotify. Why do you think people love those three songs so much lightning torn up and pb and j um that is tough like to be honest i don't even know like it, it, it's been such a slow build with those songs like the streams just kind of like keep slowly building so i i, I don't i don't actually have spotify anymore so i don't keep track of it anymore which is like uh which is healthy for me for sure um but to uh to hear that is is i, I mean it, it's interesting how the algorithm works because like it'll just keep pushing these songs because um people seem to keep listening to them and or or maybe like they, they've reached a certain level in the algorithm that they just continue to get pushed out and more people are, are listening to the song but in terms of why people like the song like um i think those are probably more of our like uh hooky poppier songs um so i think that's probably part of it you know just like um uh, they're a little bit more um wide-reaching songs um and, and yeah i think they're they're all unique songs but I, but i guess they're all different like if you even if you look at like pb and j and lightning like they're very different styles so um maybe maybe it has more to do with just the structure the simple simple structures um the choruses most likely um yeah it, it's tough to say even pbj is like the biggest kind of like we had no idea with that song because we actually released that with paralysis and we did like a music video for paralysis and we were like that was the song and then you, you bet on the wrong horse that. there you oh, bet on the wrong well, horse not only we been on the wrong horse we we weren't even going to record pbj it was only because brian Moncar's um our producer for for all those songs he was like, he basically called us and he was like, hey, like I, um, I teach at um, what used to be called Ryerson University. And he was like, we need a band to come in for my audio engineering class, like to come in and play, like, like, like the school will pay you guys, like come in and, and let, let's record a song. 
And we went in there and we were like, okay, cool. Like, let's just record PB and J then. Because like, it was like another song. Like we actually, at that time, like we had a bunch of songs that never got recorded. Uh, and that was one of them. And, and there's the other songs that didn't get recorded still never got recorded. But um, yeah, like, so PB and J was just like the, I guess the best one of the songs we like didn't record. And we are like, let's just record this one. And, um, and we recorded it for free at the university in one day and uh and then it ended up doing what it did so it was like it's it's just so funny it's just so funny that it happens that way because it just goes to show like you can you can spend all this money and like have all these plans and then it just ends up being songs a song that you don't even realize um has the potential it has to uh to do well on streaming you know uh which um again i have no idea how these songs <laughs> end up doing well on streaming it's so hard to even understand it but i'm just thankful thankful for sure i man i i love brian Moncars, and i didn't know that he had a history with the band uh he's he's provided yeah. quotes for some of the guests on the podcast before so he's a friend of the podcast uh, i know him from my my i was at metalworks for seven years the recording studio in mississauga yeah. and um and you know we're going to talk more about uh david bottrell uh brian Moncars has a history with david david bottrell i believe they had yeah. a recording studio together yeah. uh, i i believe they did the circus survive album together uh different projects so yeah i didn't know brian Moncars was involved so I'm, I'm glad to hear that he has a part to do with the ready the prince history yeah no he he's a big part to do with it he uh he produced um well he he produced and mixed um Tina paralysis and um and then he mixed all the love and torn up um and pb and j he produced and mixed as well so yeah he a lot of a lot of songs in like a really kind of important time so speaking he, of all the love uh is it true that a fan got the artwork for all the love tattooed on their body is this true or is this fake news this this is true this is true yeah shout out to zan um yeah um forearm tattoo really big forearm tattoo of the all the love artwork which was made by our friend charlotte uh she she made the artwork she's made up a lot of our artworks almost all of them um and all of our logos were made are made by charlotte as well so um yeah that is that is real <laughs> all <laughs> real right fun. So the, the song regicide so I had to look up mm. what that word meant so side <laughs> means to kill or kill off. That's why there's suicide, genocide, all the yeah. sides. Uh, so regicide, I had to check out. So for our listeners who, like me yesterday, had no idea what regicide means, uh, can you share that what that definition is? Regicide means to kill the king. Um, yeah. So I'm pretty sure that, that's the definition. Um, but yeah. I, uh, we used to have this catchphrase, and we still technically a catchphrase, but like our it was like ready the prince, the king is dead. And that actually, we, we came up with that when we came up with the band name. That was like kind of part of like why we chose the band name because we like like that meaning. Um, so yeah, and then when it came to, you know, writing songs, I was just brainstorming and I I like to look up words and look up meanings and, and I found that word and I knew I could write a song with that for sure. I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> this is us right here. So um, yeah, that that's, uh, that's what I just said. Yeah, so a person who kills or takes part in killing a king. So that's a pretty, pretty mm. awesome word. Um, and I also like, you know, ready the prince, the the king is dead or whatever you said. Do you yeah. feel like 
that's also could be like a metaphor for a changing of the guard, like ready. The prince is on its way up and it's like, whoever's there, it's like, you guys are the new thing that's coming, coming to take over. That's exactly what our mindset was when we started the band. We were like, we're going to be the best. <laughs> um, ready the prince, the king is dead. We're changing, you know, you know, we, we were different. We had a different mindset back then for sure. Uh, we were hungry uh, young kids who wanted to, prove ourselves and uh, yeah that that was totally our mindset um but i think over the years that meaning has developed because i think it could be a personal meaning too um just like you know growing and um and kind of like uh like the old you dies and the new you comes into play and i've, I've there's so many different kind of like meanings that I've kind of figured out with it. And, and I think that's what makes it a cool band name for us is that you can kind of interpret it uh, how you want. But I will say, yeah, the original, the original meaning definitely was like, um, we wanted to be the best. So, yeah. The, the young and hungry band that's looking to take over the world. It reminds me of Metallica's <laughs> debut album, kill them all. It was the same thing, right? It's like, yeah. they're going city to city, you know, take no prisoner. Let's, let's kill them all. So that's what it reminded me of. Um, you guys have made a lot of music videos over the years, like a surprising mm. amount of music videos for all the singles. And then uh, there's been two music videos for the new album. Can you share any memories when you think back to the making of any of the music videos? Are there any funny stories or anything you can share from behind the scenes? Yeah, well... So in terms of the music videos, like I think the ones that stand out of the ones that are filmed uh, are uh, Tina, because that is filmed at um, a house that me and Dan lived at. Um, we lived with our friend James, who is the star of that video. And he's also he gets a, a, a shout out in the song. So his name is in the song. And um, we uh we used to so how that happened was we posted a couple of video clips of james like dancing to our song so he danced to like torn up and he danced to like all the love and he's just like rocking out and dancing just like these funny little phone videos that i think we posted or 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 sent around maybe on twitter or something like that and then um and then when it came to the music video for tina we decided to have him uh like do a like an actual like choreographed thing like and like make it more official and so yeah like he did that all in one take and um shout out to the uh, videographer on the video uh his name is zebra zebra media is his uh is his company and he he had to like follow james around and it was all in one take he uh james probably did like 20 takes all around this house that we, we were living at and um and then dan also came in and they did like a fake sword fight which goes back to their childhood. They actually grew up together. They met when they were like three years old and they always used to do like fake sword fights with like um, tree branches and stuff like that in like elementary school. So like they brought that skill back and they have this like weird talent for that. So yeah, it was just like a hilarious video. And um, one I look back on in amazement still because of the performance James put together for that. Um, but yeah, like even like All the Love was a pretty funny video because it was just me running. <laughs> that was a very tiring video um and then torn up was a really fun video shoot as well we got like a bunch of people there for that so that was like um it was super cold that day that, that's a, that's a memory from that and then the other videos uh i mean i gotta give a huge shout out to shoreler um he's like you know the unofficial fourth member of the band he's like our, our best friend who's done like 
a ton of our artworks, um, merch, uh, designs, and um, he helps us with content and all that stuff too. So, and uh, he he made the the regicide video, uh, and the prey lyric video. Um, just him uh, by himself creating that, and it's like really amazing. So, yeah, we 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 we've got some good videos up there, which is cool for sure. So let's dive into the new album. This is probably what you're most excited to talk about. So Book of OG comes out in September 2023. And there's a, a, a new band member. So Bradley Thibodeau joins as the drummer in 2021. So he was a part of this album. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, Dan. We've talked about you. Uh, can you talk about Bradley for a second? He comes into play for this album. And, and what does he bring to the table? He brings a lot to the table. He is uh, one hell of a drummer. I, I've always been a fan of Brad. Um, he uh, He's in a band called Possum. Uh, they're another band from Toronto. And uh, so I've been watching him play drums for years. Uh, I, I discovered Possum um, right around the same time uh, of the RTPEP. Um, so maybe 2015, 2016. And, I, it was just like this one video that randomly popped on my Facebook feed of like them playing live. And I was like, whoa, this is the craziest band I've ever seen. Like, I got to go see them live. And I instantly went to their show. They're playing a show at the Central, which is this tiny venue in Toronto that no longer exists. And I just went and I remember just being amazed, uh, especially by Brad. Like the whole band is incredible, but like Brad is like one hell of a live drummer. Like it is... Uh, it's incredible what he does um, when he's just in his zone. Um, so yeah, he, he brings like a, an energy um, and a passion um, for drums and for music that is uh, really just amazing. And he, he definitely helped us with this record, just like take these songs to uh, levels that we never thought uh, we could have ever brought them. And he's like, he's, he's just got so much power, so much, um, like he, he's technical, but at the same time, he's like punk and he's rock and he's R&B and he's hip hop. He's, he's, he's everything in a lot of ways that me and Dan are uh, as musicians as well. So he's just like the perfect kind of like, um, just like fit for us. And, and uh, it's been really fun now, like writing songs with him too. And um, yeah, he, he's, uh, I can't say enough about Brad. So you guys have released three singles from the new album. So there's Backslider, there's Sabretooth, and there's OG. Uh, Backslider and OG are my two favorite songs off the album. There's eight songs on the album, I believe. Uh, so I agree with your single choices. Uh, and cool. uh, we have a fan question sent in, someone that also agrees with your single choices. So this is from Cheyenne mm. Rose. And her mm. question is, well, she starts by saying, well, I'd probably spend the first hour panic fangirling. But after the first question, uh, I'd ask, what's the story or inspiration for Backslider? It really resonates with me, and I'd love to hear how the song came to be. So that's from Cheyenne Rose. Cool. Um, so Backslider, um, that is a Dan, that is a Dan song. So there's certain songs where Dan will bring in, like I kind of mentioned, like these like guitar parts. And, uh, and then we'll kind of create a song out of it. But he, um, he came in with the backslider. So he, he basically took his, uh, his Stratocaster guitar and drop tuned it to um, C sharp 
um, and and I think tuned everything down half a step. So it was like this this experiment he kind of did with his guitar, and um, he uh, he was really inspired with this new tuning of his guitar. Um, so uh, yeah, he he just wrote this this crazy like verse riff for Backslider, and um, and then we kind of just started jamming over it, and uh, we knew it definitely had potential. And then I think he, I think, yeah, so the verse riff came first and then I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to try and make this uh, into like a song with like, like a vocal melody and lyrics. And then I, I started writing it and, um, and then me and him together kind of jammed out the chorus and then uh, uh, we, we had the riff as well. And, uh, and then when it came to the lyrics, um, it was a song that we wrote about, um, falling like the word backslider for for me means like kind of falling back into into your old habits or your old self when you're trying to kind of break out of that um so that's like the gist of where the lyrics came and there was like a really cool kind of theme with that that i that i, I wanted to, to talk about with that song um and um i think it's um something that is uh you know i think something everyone can relate to especially myself so it, it was really cool to kind of put a song like that uh, together but um yeah it's cool it's like it's 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 very different from anything else we've ever released so it's a, a song i'm definitely proud of and what's the inspiration behind the title of the album so book of og is this is there some lore here <laughs> uh sort of i mean um so book of og uh obviously the title track uh or the first song on the record og basically og means prince in japanese and again that was me exploring and trying to find just creative things uh to write songs about and uh just words like regicide you know sometimes i'll just kind of stumble upon words and maybe i was messing around with google translate i think that's how it happened and i just i i, I really like the japanese language i've always just thought it's like a really cool language just like the words they just they just look cool and sound cool to me and um when i saw og for prince i was like oh yeah like this is this is i want to i want to use this like this is this is really cool so it kind of like i kind of then wrote that song and um and i used og as like a character in, in the song um i have a line in the song it's like look it's og the chosen one and so it kind of had this like idea that there's like this messiah and like that was like og and it's like the prince which is like you know there's so many different ways to look at it but um that's that basically where it came from and um in a way with this song with this album title which took us a long time to figure out by the way we went through a lot of different album titles it is it is definitely something that is hard for us titles and artworks are very difficult for us but um not song titles album titles song titles are pretty pretty easy um but there's something about naming an album that is just like way harder it's more um, it's like more so, important you know it's it it has to represent yeah. a bunch of songs and yeah and the band and, and your image and all those things can you share uh any of the album titles that didn't make the cut i i feel like you know fans probably would have never heard what the other titles are i don't know if you're allowed to to share this stuff well i mean I'm just like almost too embarrassed to share some of them, but I mean, one of them, like we, we were, we were almost going to call the album before I'm gone. Um, and, and shout out to Shorler. He, he loves before I'm gone. And, and we had talked about the reasons why the album should be called before I'm gone. Um, you know, we were going to call the album just OG, um, on its own for a while. That's what we were calling it. 
Um, we had another one, a, a good a good one I can mention is a stage of fools, which comes from a, a Shakespeare quote that um, from King Lear, I believe that uh, Luke uh, grunts from Cleopatra shared with us when he kind of gave us like his kind of, um, he, he basically did like a little like uh, his thoughts on our album and he like, he, he mentioned this Shakespeare quote and and it was really cool and and everything, all his meanings behind that is a reason why Dan wanted to call the record Stage of Fools at one point. But it's tough because like you can have an album like in a name that like means a lot, it means exactly what you want the album to to represent. But then it's like, then it comes down to the actual name just like feeling right or like being, you know, like, uh, I guess like memorable or whatever. And um, yeah, so so Book of OG, um, we just, we look at this song, we look at, we, I'm sorry, this album, we look at the songs in this album and it very much feels like stories and um, and just kind of, it's like a very dark, like in a lot of ways, mysterious record. And, and when we put the track list together, you know, it, it, it had this like sequence in, in a sense. And um, when it came down to it, that's just the, the title that really felt right. And then mixed with the artwork too. Cause it, for us, it was like, to come up with the title, we needed to know the artwork. And then to know the artwork, we needed the title. So like it had to happen together. And uh, that's why we kind of ended up going with like that, that book uh, theme, uh, because it just, you know, it's the type of record that we feel like the music speaks for itself. So we wanted to keep the album uh, cover simple and kind of like mysterious and, uh, and just have like that RTP up there. And um, yeah, just kind of like go along for the journey essentially. Can you give us some insight into the recording of the album? Is it true that you guys built a studio in a container? Is that a real thing? <laughs> I hear rumors well, of these things. So that is true, but that is Brad. That is Brad. So Brad is also like a very skilled construction worker and carpenter. And he, he's just like, a, he can do anything with his hands kind of guy. And uh, he's, he's built a lot of different things. And he, he built his, um, he built his studio, which is, yeah, like it is essentially like a, a, a trailer container or whatever you want to call it, turn, like turn into a studio. And um, that is not where we record the album. That is where we do all our demos and that is where we jam um, and practice. But we recorded the album um, in uh, Union Sound Company, which is a studio in Toronto. Um, and Darren McGill, uh, shout out Darren McGill. He's an amazing engineer. Uh, he works at Union, uh, and he uh, he engineered the whole the whole record for us. And um, yeah, we 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 just we rented out Union Sound Studio for like six days, and we just hammered out seven tracks at that time. Um, Before I'm Gone came later, so the first uh, seven tracks that we recorded were the other tracks in the record, not Before I'm Gone, and um, that was all recorded in six days uh, at Union Sound Company and. Um, with uh, Luke and Ian from Cleopatra came and they were they were there for every single session uh, that week and they stayed at my place and uh, and Darren and then um, we we ended up going back a month later to finish vocals and like do some touch ups on th some things and then uh, yeah and then months later we ended up recording before I'm gone with David Bacho producing uh, which is an amazing experience uh, but again at Union Sound Company with Darren Engineering still so it, it felt like it still kind of like was all one but there was there's a, a lot of months in between um, so yeah that, that's that's pretty much how we recorded it 
there was no post-production. It was literally just like those days in the studio and then uh, David mixed it. So I, I looked up uh, Darren McGill and man, this guy's worked with Monster Truck, the Flatliners, the Dirty Nil, <laughs> Pop, uh, Silverstein. Uh, Man, that's a that's amazing, man. This guy's worked with everybody. And you you guys actually had to sit on the album for over a year for business related reasons. Uh, how hard was it to sit on an album that you were so proud of and couldn't wait for it to get released? And then how how happy were you guys once the album finally came out in September? Yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it was definitely a interesting experience. Like it was just it was it was more weird just it's just so weird to be like we were already we, we were just writing a new album because <laughs> we were like okay like what else are we gonna do now but like let's just like keep writing because that's what we love to do so it was almost like we even like just forgot these songs even like existed because no one knew them and we just kind of like moved on from them in, in, in a sense in a sense we always knew we'd be releasing but like there comes a point when you're sitting on an album for so long that you like you just end up just doubting it completely um we knew it was great but like there was always like i don't know when you, when you don't when you and don't release something it's like you never really know uh what it's gonna be so it was it was tough it was tough for sure um you know if we could do it again i'm sure we, we'd just release it way earlier but i think it somehow worked out you know it worked out when we when we have released it it's been kind of awesome to kind of have this new um this new kind of rebirth with the songs and like now we're playing them live and it's like they feel new now even though they're so old like they feel so new now because we're playing them live for the first time and we had to like learn them like relearn them like again basically and and um and and we had to be able to play them even better than when we recorded them because you know playing live is a whole other animal and um so yeah we uh it's been awesome it's been awesome to get them out and to hear that um People have been connecting with the songs, you know, especially because like these these songs and this record in a lot of ways is like it's not um, it's not a safe record. You know, there's there's a lot of, um, you know, vulnerable, challenging, you know, especially lyrically for me. So that was the hardest part is just like questioning like because you get to this point where you've 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 uh you've been kind of like separated from these songs for so long where i, I don't even remember what i was thinking when i wrote these songs like it was just so long ago so it's it's really difficult for me uh it was really difficult for me to kind of like stay kind of like confident that like um i guess they were going to connect uh or people would get kind of understand them but I, I kept telling myself and i've always told myself this um anytime i feel like you know worried or insecure about the lyrics of the song that's always the songs that end up uh connecting the most and i just i've learned that and i um and so that's kind of like anytime now i'm like i need to feel that way or else i don't think i i i i got deep enough you know or or wrote something meaningful enough um so i i'm that's that's that, that was the biggest challenge for sure so i'd like to dive into a few specific songs on the album if that's okay with you of course so uh, the first song, OG, uh, to me, it sounds like the song was built around that bass line. Can you remember when you first came up with that riff? So the song was actually written on an acoustic guitar completely. Um, so that, but that riff came into play after. So, so I wrote that whole song on an acoustic guitar and uh, I brought it to Jordan and Dan because at this point Jordan was, was in the band. Um, and uh 
I wrote the, uh, we were just jamming uh, the intro. So I kind of taught um, Dan, like I just told Dan like what I was playing on guitar for that intro. And then he, so he started playing that intro and then, um, and then Jordan just laid down the groove. And then I just started playing the bass riff. Like we were in a, a rehearsal factory in Toronto. We used to jam it out of a rehearsal factory at one point. And I just kind of started playing the bass line. And then Jordan uh, had an idea for like a little melody change in the bass line. And uh, cause I was going like, I was just doing the, the so the bum, 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 right? Like that's how it starts. So that's actually Jordan, bum, 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 bum. He kind of was like, hey, why don't you try bum, 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 bum? Because before I was just doing, Boom, 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 boom. So I was just doing that. And then he kind of had the idea for the for the other kind of boom, 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 boom. So that, that's the story behind that baseline. If you want to get specific, um, Jordan had a big role in that. Uh, as he always as he always did, you know, he, he, he's got a great ear and he would hear like little things like that. Um, and um, yeah, that's the story behind the baseline. So the song in vain, is this the band's most danceable song? And when you play this live, uh, do crowds, uh, do they cut a rug? Do they bust a groove? <laughs> you know what? We've only played it a few times live, to be honest. So it's the drums that really uh, give a, give, give a, a dance groove to it. I find. Yeah, probably. I mean, I would, I would say maybe cliff diver potentially, um, or even like, you know, dead roads. Like we have some songs that are like pretty groovy as well. Like I'd say maybe. Dead Roads is also like a jumper, but I think it's it's groovy too. I think in vain. I mean, yeah, you could definitely dance to it, but it's almost like that dance beat that's like, you you um, it almost makes you um, I don't know. For me, that song like it, it's almost like uh, trying to put put my words together here, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily dance to it. But it's just like hearing like that dance beat in the background. Just gives me that type of feeling like rather like so you're kind of like laying down but you like hear a dance beat i don't know but yeah i mean i hope some people start dancing to it I, I would love that i'm definitely gonna be dancing on stage to it so hopefully people follow my lead so david bottrell mixed the album but he also produced one song which is before i'm gone and we have a fan question sent in so this is from sven marcotti and his question is what was it like having a legend like david bottrell produce a song on your album and how did you get him? It, it was, uh, so to answer the second question, it's as simple as uh, sending an email to his manager. <laughs> um, and um, he, I think he heard uh, the demo and he was like, hell yeah, let's do this. So yeah, it's as simple as that. Um, just sent him, sent him the song and, and, sent, uh, and we had a meeting. Um, I think it was a phone call and yeah. Uh, working with David Bottrell uh, was an amazing experience. Um, you know, like you never know what to expect when you're working with like a legend um, like him. But like, it was uh, it was just like it, it, he's not a, an intimidating guy at all. Like he is just so like easy to work with, and um, he really lets you uh, be yourself. Like he he obviously you know. Um, contributes a lot but at the same time like he uh he he's trying to find the what I, how i experienced it was like he was trying to find the best in us and uh and he kept like he was just like very open to anything that we wanted to do and um he just he, he felt very collaborative working with him and and um and he has such a great sense for uh just like music in general um like it, it, 
even mix like the way he mixed the record like he would always refer back to like the dynamics of the song and um just aspects of of like almost like a classical approach in some ways like it almost felt like he was like he has like a composer background or something because that's how he would always kind of talk about the songs and he just had a great feel and um just a ton of fun to be around just just great overall vibe in the studio so it was just like all positive working with david botchel so I have some kind words sent in from the legend himself, three-time Grammy <laughs> award-winning producer, David Bottrell. He says, Steve and Ready the Prince are carrying on the tradition of the power trio. And he knows, man, he's worked with Rush. So uh, he says, they have a great punk energy, but also write strong melodies and song structures and are really developing their own compositional signature. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed working with them and look forward to hearing new material. So that's from David Bottrell. Awesome. Thanks, David. There you go. So did it start with uh, him coming on to just produce the one song? And then afterwards, you guys decided you you got him to mix the whole album? Or was it reverse? It was kind of like both at the same time. It was like we knew we wanted to try to do one more song to kind of complete it. Just because seven songs just didn't feel like enough for like the full LP, which is, which was our goal. And we wanted to do one more song and try to do uh, a song that was a little bit different from the rest of the songs and, and work with someone on it. Cause we had self-produced the rest of them. And, and we, we thought, Hey, look, let's like, let's try to have like someone come in and help us with the song and, and see what that can do. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe this song will be, you know, uh, on another level, you know, uh, but then it was just also just like we knew then we, we knew we wanted him to mix it, too. So so it made sense to just like do both at the same time. And um, and that's essentially what happened. Uh, and it was just a great experience. You know, like you learn a lot when you work with uh, really experienced producers. And um, we, we've also worked with uh, Dave Schiffman as well um, on uh, Lightning, Regicide and Prey. And he's another legendary uh, producer engineer. So, you know, like just the opportunity to work with with uh, professionals like that. It's like there's so much that you take from it that is is really priceless. Um, so it's it's always worth it. Sure. So this the song "Death." Uh, was there any fear releasing an acoustic song in a song that's very vulnerable? You're talking about vulnerability before. Well, so it's funny with that song. Um, <laughs> We, we definitely could have done more with it um, instrumentally, but uh, it was just, it was like circumstance where we only had a certain amount of days in the studio that we like could afford. And with that song, it was always an acoustic song. And we were always like, okay, eventually we're gonna like make death into like a full band song. Eventually we'll make it to a full band song. And then the closer we got to the recording, it was just like, what if we just do it acoustically? and we also just didn't have time to like to like record it with a full band because like that means like another another song you gotta do on drums, another song you gotta do with like full guitars and bass and whatever. Um, so yeah, like the more we thought about it as as we got closer to recording, we we're just like, I think this song is just it just works. And then when we when we figured out the track list, having the acoustic song on there felt like a really really good idea because it's it's such a part of me as a as a songwriter a lot of that album almost the whole album was written on an acoustic guitar so i felt like it made sense to have a song that just like 
it's a song that came together organically. And it, it was very much the type of song that came together quickly and, and pretty much in one sitting like that. So it made sense to just have it be performed. Um, but yeah, and I think that's the whole point. You know, it is a vulnerable song. So why not, why not strip it back and, um, and, and kind of like have it be uh, what, it, what it truly is. So, so let, let's talk about touring uh, before we wrap up the interview. Uh, you guys wrapped up a tour with Protests of Hero, so a, a very popular Canadian band. I saw them so long ago uh, that they were on a bill in Ottawa at a venue called Club Saw, that back then it was maybe 80 people capacity. Uh, this was like before they made it big. I saw them that long ago. And then to bring a full circle, I just saw them with your show with them uh, a few months ago. What would you say were the highlights of your tour with Protest the Hero? Highlights of Protest the Hero. I mean, we played a massive show um, with them in London, the London Music Hall uh which was which was crazy um like that that definitely sticks out uh just like the the sheer size of the venue and and playing you know the biggest thing playing with protest the hero was was playing to a metal audience essentially um was so much fun and so different we've never had that opportunity before again it comes back to our whole like not knowing what our sound is and like we were never really heavy enough to play like necessarily with like metal bands, you know, and then to get this opportunity to play with protest, the hero, it was like, it was such a big challenge. We were like, okay, like we got to go and we got to like open for protest, the hero and play for like play in front of fans who are about to see like such an incredibly technically proficient band and um, that have like completely different styles to us in a lot of ways. Um, and we got to try and, you know, win this crowd over. So yeah, just, just that overall experience just sticks out as like a huge kind of moment for us where we were like, okay, we can, we can do this. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of people who probably didn't like us, like in terms of like our style, but I mean, I felt like for the most part, we were able to win over the crowds and, and, um, just the meeting the band and seeing and seeing them play live just the hero was like such an awesome experience too. Like there's such great people and um, amazing musicians. And so just being exposed to that is always like inspiring and um, just like a, a privilege, you know, like it's, uh, it's awesome. It's awesome just to be able to play like they're, they're probably the most famous band we've ever played with. So um, that's just really cool. Really, really cool. I saw Alexis on fire perform at London Music Hall to show how badass that venue is. So you guys yeah. playing there uh, with Protest the Hero is pretty awesome. Um, you, you guys have an exciting upcoming tour. So February and March 2024, uh, you guys are going on tour with Dead Poets Society. This is your biggest tour yet. What can you share with our listeners about this tour? And what can our fans, what can your fans expect if they come out to see you at a live show? This tour is uh, is one of those tours where it's like it's not gonna feel real until we we just show up in uh, in Lisbon, uh, which is the first show in Portugal. Um, it's like we're playing so many new countries that we've never even dreamt of playing. Like honestly, um, with this tour, so it's such an amazing opportunity for us to uh, to see uh, all these different places and play to all these people that um, we may not. I've ever had the opportunity to play for so i mean what they can expect is uh is 
a band that is incredibly uh, grateful to be in that position. And we're definitely going to be just playing our hearts out and like we always do, but like, I think it's, it's different when you go overseas and you're so far from home. It's like, yeah, we really try to tap into something. And I, and I think the crowds are going to be really, really fun to play to because um, I mean, we, we played overseas a, a, a few times now and like, there's an amazing energy in a lot of those shows and um, Dead Poets Society is such a great band. And, and I know they have a lot of passionate fans and it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think uh, anybody who comes out to those shows is, is going to be happy that they did for sure. So I have just three final questions for you, but these are the most difficult questions of the interview. Can you handle the final three questions here? Yeah, let's do it. So we're we're nearing the end of the year. 2023 is coming to mm. a close. When you look ahead at next year, 2024, if mm. everything turned out the way you wanted it to turn out, if, if you could kind of... Uh, will things into existence for 2024? What would that year look like for the band? Well, <laughs> we would probably like, okay, if I can will it into existence, we would um, find the funds <laughs> to <laughs> afford to record uh, a second album um, because uh we have a lot of music kind of waiting in the wings. Um, so, I mean, that, that would be the most exciting thing to do. You know, we're already getting such an amazing opportunity to, to tour. Um, any other opportunities we get to tour would be amazing too. So, I mean, Hey, if we can, if we can go in and, and record another album and, uh, and tour a bunch of, a bunch of cities that, uh, that have people in them that want to hear us play, that would be that would be all we could we could ask for in terms of uh, ready to print for sure. But we'll see. I mean, I, I don't think uh, I don't know if that will happen. But we'll, we'll we'll see. Maybe we can record a little bit though. We've put it out there into the ether though, so <laughs> we'll see if if the universe responds. Uh, when when you look back on your life and career, what are you most proud hmm. of, and what are you most grateful for? Um, you know, I, I'm most proud of, I guess. Um, you know, the work I've put in, uh, especially as a singer, I think, um, I think I've really proved something that, uh, you know, someone can be a bad singer and then, uh, become a good singer. And, uh, now I, I, I teach singing. So it's, 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 it's amazing what like a, a mindset can do. Uh, so yeah, I'm really, really proud of where I've gotten as a singer and, uh, want to definitely continue to develop my voice. Um, but yeah, even, even as a songwriter and I'm proud of, uh, you know, some of the, some of the songs are most of the songs really. And, uh, what I've been able to kind of put into songs, you know, it's hard to, to, to be kind of vulnerable, right? Like we talked about. So, um, I'm proud of that though. Um, and I'm most grateful for like, I mean, just, just the opportunities we get to, to play to people who want to hear us play and people who to, who love our music i mean it's it's a dream come true for sure you know just to have uh to have anybody who cares you know for us to be able to release an album uh you know 11 years in to release our debut album <laughs> um it's still amazing you know just to know that people are excited to hear it um 
it's it's all you could ever ask for really uh so yeah like that's that's what we're grateful for just being able to play for even just to have you know have the band together you know that that's a huge part about being in a band that people don't necessarily think of all the time is like just to just to have the band together uh there's been moments in our careers where you know we haven't had a drummer and that's all we wanted we're like if we could just have a drummer i'd be happy so even just being grateful to to have you know daniel this entire time and and brad now um that that's just to be able to play with those guys and um yeah that that's that's all i can ask for so it's it's funny that you release your debut album and now you know you're an overnight success 11 years in the making right (laughs) yeah yeah for sure so what what advice would you give your 10-year-old self? If you could go back in time, you could sit down next to your 10-year-old self and you look at your life that you've lived since then and you look at your experiences and your lessons and mentorship and your your ups and downs, your successes and failures, what advice do you give to cute little Steve sitting there with a beautiful head of hair? What advice do you give him uh, to help guide him through this human experience? That is so tricky. Like, I don't think 10 year old Steve would listen to anything I had to say. I was a pretty, uh, I was a, I was the type of kid that just like didn't do his homework. So I don't think I was listening to what it, what I, I might have said, but I will say one thing I really wish that I could say to 10 year old Steve is listen, buddy, play piano, practice the piano and get as far as you can with your, your training and get, get your chops up because when you're older, you're going to wish that you did. So that, I mean, for a strictly musical reason, that is the main thing I would make sure 10 year old Steve realizes, Hey, just go through it and get really good because you're going to want to be better. You're going to want to use those skills later because now I'm, I'm, I'm learning piano now and I have for like a, a few years now. And it's, uh, it's something I wish I just already had it in the back of my, uh, uh, I wish I already had that skill, but yeah, other than that, I mean, in terms of what I've learned, I don't know. I, I don't think there's anything I could say. You just got to learn. You got to live and learn. Uh, that that's it. I'm still learning. So I would say just like, Hey, just stay out of trouble, I guess, uh, which I've managed to, uh, so yeah, that, that's it. I think the piano thing would be the main thing I would try to drill into hit, to 10 year old Steve. <laughs> You're not going to tell little Steve to double down on the tuba. I mean, what is this? <laughs> See the tuba would have happened anyways, you know, like he would have been fine, but it's like the piano that didn't happen. He needed that and, and he didn't do it. So I'm, I'm, you know, he needs that reminder. <laughs> you You sound a little angry at 10 year old Steve here with the, lost piano yeah because I was, i'm just joking around yeah no you're right though i was but i was you know i was a lazy kid you know i i, I wish i would have put in that work because because you know those are the those are the musicians and and stuff like that who have the have the upper hand you know when, when you learn and, and develop a skill at a young age like yeah you're 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 way ahead um because time is precious time is precious and, and there's like it's a great time to learn an instrument when you're a kid and you're just you know playing video games all day anyways <laughs> 
So as we wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a bass player, as a singer, as a songwriter. I want to thank you for releasing great music. I mean, I've been listening to your music a lot for the last year. I've really been sinking my teeth into the new album. I've listened to it four or five times. So some of those spins are from me on Spotify. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, I want to thank you for this interview, for sitting down with me for the last two hours, uh, answering all my ridiculous questions. I really appreciate it. <laughs> So, Steve, thank you for your time. Joel, thank you so much. Uh, this has been um, an honor. It, it has not felt like two hours. It has felt like five minutes, and I really enjoyed it. And I also want to say thank you to um, all the fans who sent in questions. And, yeah, thank you for all your amazing questions and for putting the the time and effort you, you did into this. It's, uh, it's really amazing. So thank you, Joel. You're very welcome. Thank you for the kind words. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. To the Steve fans, to the Ready the Prince fans, thanks for sticking with us for the last two hours. And we'll see you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message. And I'll see you on the next episode.